Alright guys, welcome back for another episode of the Young Black Suburban. We have a very, very special guest. Uh, my equally vaccinated friend. <laughs> yes, this we is are. Well, this is, the reason why I say that is this is my first podcast where almost everybody in the room is vaccinated. Um, so it's something to celebrate. Uh, and part of your platform, which we'll get into later on, uh, has to do with uh, COVID health and safety. Yes. Um, I have the great Jeff Fisher from Bristol Barrow. Also, the owner, manager of the Bristol Borough Community Action Group. Uh, and that's how me and Jeff became friends. Uh, Jeff, before we get into our great you know, relationship and friendship that we're developing, tell us how you're doing. Hey, I'm doing great right now. Uh, Bristol Borough Community Action Group stayed open through the whole pandemic. My major players there are vaccinated. Yes. And we feel very comfortable with the way things are going right now. Good, good. Um, now, do you see an influx of need for the food pantry during the pandemic? I'm sure you did. Um, how did you handle that? Um, we're going to get right into the meat and potatoes because uh, we're almost out of it. Uh, but we don't want people to forget how hard it was for businesses that stayed open and businesses that were closed, and especially food pantry well it was a hard road to go but many people stepped up you included him because uh you came by and made a sizable donation helped us keep our doors open and other folks stepped up and that was the thing i wasn't really sure because everybody had kind of fallen back right and then when they made it known that people were suffering suddenly donations came from nowhere right and it really put us in a position that we're able to feed people get them quality food. Uh, one of the things I have a good relationship with is Giants Food and the local Giants store. They have supplied fresh food, me access to things that come in right off the truck. Right. So my people aren't taking donations half the time. Half the time they're eating stuff that came in off the truck, fresh food that I'm getting from, you know, Giants. They're saying like, here, we're giving you this much to go. Just go purchase and take care of the people in the nice. neighborhood. Nice. So they stepped up. Everybody stepped up around me. Right. And if you haven't noticed, uh, the Bristol Borough Community Action Group is a food pantry uh, where they do take uh, food donations. But in order to have a place for the food to go, they have to keep the lights on. True. Uh, they have uh, people that work for them. They have electricity, refrigerators that they have to keep running. Um, so... When we talk about food pantries, and we're going to talk more and more about uh, the food, the, you know, the, the community action group, but this is a very important thing to just say off the top. When it comes to donations, don't forget monetary donations are almost just as, they are, I'm going to say, they're just as important as the actual food products that you bring. Um, because without the refrigerators being on, that food's not going to last. True. Uh, they go hand in hand. Um, the Bristol Barrow Community Action Group is in the neighborhood where you grew up. Yeah, it's 99 Wood Street. It's about a five-minute you know, walk from my house. Right. And uh, how was it growing up in Bristol Barrow? How, how, how was it 16-plus uh, oh, 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 years ago? Oh, yeah, you want to you <laughs> show you my age. Okay. Uh, well, see, when I, when I grew up, 
TV was black and white. <laughs> right, right, right. It was right. black and white, and we were one of the few families that actually had like a color TV when it came in. But uh, yeah, it was a lot different, a lot more family oriented. Okay. I was blessed enough to have two parents in the household all the time, pretty much. Uh, my mom and dad grew. My dad grew up in Bristol Borough. My family dates back to 1852 in the borough. Wow. With my great great maybe great-grandfather, George Fisher, who had one of the first uh, moving companies in Bristol. I saw the house when it had a barn in the back. The mules were gone when I grew up, but he had two mules and a cart, and he advertised off of uh, 431 Washington Street, and he took those mules and he moved people around. Wow. But so, and then he helped build the church on uh, Wood Street. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Bethel AME. He came in and helped build that church. So there was an African Methodist church in this town somewhere in the 18, past 1850, it was like 1800s when they actually started that. It was well over 100 and some odd years old. Right, it's still around. Still around. Nice. And I'm a member. And Well, so your grandfather. Great. Great grandfather. Great grandfather. Wow. Created the church that you're still in today. Yes, there was a lot of people. There was a lot of good families that came together. And also, they were funded, I think it was by a Quaker group in Philadelphia that actually said, you know, the African-American population in Bristol need to have a church. So they said, here, take this. And, you know, they fronted them the building or the land or something, and they built it up from there. Right. Well, now, so that's... A long time ago, but it's not that long ago. Um, when you talk about civilization, uh, you talk about America being America. Do you remember hearing anything about the racial climate, about your family, or coming to Bristol Borough, being probably one of the first families here? Well, that whole thing was kind of funny. First of all, my dad grew up in Bristol and everybody knew him. Mm-hmm. He went off to college at Storer College one of the few black colleges in uh, America, aside from Howard. Mm-hmm. And they went there. It's kind of like a little prestigious, little tiny, you know, African-American school. He met my mom there. My mom came from Middleburg, Virginia. She raised me as a Southern boy mm-hmm. because she came from Middleburg. So I grew up with all the good stuff, like right. the biscuits and the fried chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's why I have to come here and lose weight. <laughs> but uh, mom and dad met there. Mom got in at 16. My mom never saw a B ever in her life. She was straight A's in school, went to a good college at 16, and graduated before my dad at 20. Wow. My dad went there. He worked hard. I'm not saying he wasn't as bright as my mom. Right, right, But right. he worked hard, and he came in, and he was a chemist, had a natural inclination. So his senior year, he taught chemistry. They got married. My dad went off to the war. They came back. He had a job at Roman Haas as the first African-American chemist in the nation for the company. He was number one. It took him a while to get there. He first came in, they made him a janitor. For two years, he worked as a janitor. One time, he was walking through the lab, and the chemist there, one chemist was going, like, I can't figure this out. I don't understand why this isn't working. And my dad looked up from pushing his mop and said, well, if you move this over to here and you do this and this, it'll balance out. And they were like, what the heck? Yeah. And then it turned out they realized what he knew and his history, 
and they decided to break precedent, wow. and they hired him as the first African-American chemist at the local Roman Haas plant that's now Dow. Oh, it had to be 1947. Nice. Because he had been back. It reminds me of a, a movie called Hidden Figures. I don't know if you saw that, about the first uh, f- black African-American females that helped us get to the moon. Uh, astrophysicist. Actually, um, I did see something about that. Um, and, you know, they weren't really taken serious at first. First, uh, they were African American. Second, they were females. Um, and then when they discovered that, wow, these were the people that we needed to get the job done, boom. You know, yeah, it seems race goes out the door when there's a need. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. there's a need. They don't care what color you are as long as you get the job done. Right, exactly. But then after you get the job done, it goes kind of back to okay. You know how that goes. Um, so, how about your mother? What kind of career did she have? Okay, my mother was the first African American teacher in the Bristol Borough School District. Wow, and she there's also, a lot of a lot and, of firsts going on uh, here. Well, my brother John, who passed away, he was the first African American taken in at the Courier Times by the Calkins paper right. and then moved into management before he passed away. So, yeah, there were a lot of firsts. I did. I was like, now what do I do? You know, so my mom told me this and she said straight up, we expect a lot out of you. We went to school when black people didn't. So, you just aren't going to a regular college. This is what they accepted. Said, you can go to the following three schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Right. And that's the expectations they said. So when I went up to the guidance office at Bristol High, they said, where are you going to go to college? I was like, Harvard, Yale, or Princeton? And they were just like, what are you talking about? Harvard, Yale. No, no, no. You better shoot your aim a lot lower. Uh, maybe a good state college. Maybe this. All the way through, I said, Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. Right. After I found out about Harvard and Yale, how far away it was, I said, I don't want to go up there. And plus those neighborhoods, I don't know. I wouldn't fit in. Right. But Princeton is local. It's 35 minutes away from my home. That's where I'm going to go. Went to the guidance office. They said, where'd you put in your applications? I said, well, I put it uh, into Princeton. And they looked at me funny. And they said, well, what's your backup school? And I said, Franklin and Marshall. Mm-hmm. And they put other schools. I said, that's it. Applications are like almost a hundred bucks a pop. Right, right. And, you know, I'm from a, even though they worked hard, we're middle class family. Right. And I got financial aid to go to college. I got heat from my guidance department all through my senior year. You messed up. You're not gonna. This is going to happen. Now you're going to be at Bucks County. They painted a very negative portrait of my future. Mm-hmm. So when applications came in, I got my my returns. I went in and I said, uh, well, I got accepted at Franklin and Marshall. And they said, you got into Franklin and Marshall? You're so lucky. You're so lucky because we thought that you weren't going to get anywhere. I said, I turned it down. And they said, you turned it down? I said, yeah. I got early admission at Princeton for pre-med. And they could have just died. Right, right. Just died. Right. Even when I went up in 1973... And they announced Princeton University scholarship. Everybody was cheering for their last kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they said Jeff Fisher, Princeton University, hey. Wow. There wasn't a sound in the house. Yeah. But a good friend of my family, Pauline Davis, she was the school board president. <laughs> she walked up 
took the diploma out of the hands of the gentleman that was handing him out, and she said something like, no one here has the right to give this guy his diploma but me. Mm. And she was an African-American, very strong. Wow. Strong African-American woman, didn't take anything from anyone, but she heard the whole crowd hush. Right. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. How did that make you feel? Oh, um, I felt so wonderful. Cause then <laughs> I mean, about the crowd's reaction. Uh, I know where I live. <laughs> right. Because that's similar to, like, you know, athletes like a Jackie Robinson had to uh, endure the crowd and, mm. and, you know, first black. They uh, didn't boo. They didn't do anything. They just didn't do anything. I think they might have been just stunned. Right. And then when she handed me my diploma, then everybody cheered and went nuts. Right, right. But they were, I think it was like, my, my kid didn't get it. Right. In that moment. And then they they caught themselves and everybody So you, you said that you, you, know, you knew where you were living, where you were from. Um, I remember watching a documentary about Levittown, which is outside of Bristol Borough, um, about the first African-American family that moved to Levittown. Oh, my dad turned that down, by the way. Oh, yeah. That, that's another story. That was going to be you? No, that was going to be my dad. My dad had accepted it. Okay. And my mother had just had my brother. He was like a couple of years old. And she was like, my dad was Harrison Fisher. My mom was Doris Fisher. She said, Harrison, you know if you go up there, there will be burning crosses and shooting bullets. You have a son and a wife. That's a job for people that don't have a son and a wife, someone that just wants to be bold and be up there ducking bulls as yeah. a young guy. So if you accept this, that's fine. You not I know you're committed to the NAACP. You want to do this. But John and I are going to be down in Middlebury <laughs> yeah, right, right. hearing about you on the news because right. I'm not going. At which point my dad declined and he bought the house on Linden Street in Bristol. Mm. Even with that, there was a petition that went through the neighborhood saying, you know, this, you know, guy, they, they had other names, so you then were you're trying to move into our neighborhood and change our way of life, and everybody was signing the petitions. The guy next to us knew our family, and not a prejudice bone in his body. He wouldn't sign the petition, and then he let my dad and mom know, they're signing this petition against you, but I told everybody what I know about you. You're a professional, you're a college guy, and you're making, between you, you're making more cheddar than anybody in this neighborhood. Right, right. And it went on for a while. And then once they realized how my dad set up the play set in the backyard, top of the line toys, all this stuff, yeah. and they tied the fence off. They put up a real nice fence, and they locked the gate. Now suddenly people were wanting to put their kids over the fence right, and play right. with Johnny. John was the most popular kid in the neighborhood then. Okay. My mom and dad were not too receptive the first year and after a while. They all got to know each other. Right. Again, I think the biggest problem we have in race relations is people fail to communicate. They make quick judgments mm -hmm. off the color of your skin, your this or yeah. that. And black people do the same yeah, with white exactly. people. Do the same thing. I, I've, I've done it yeah. um, in, in my adult life, you know. Um, and then, just like uh, other people come and they have these uh, epiphanies, I'm like, man, I can't believe I thought that way about this person, you know, this they're not that way. Um, now, you went to Princeton, but you did you go to Bristol High? Yeah. Do you remember how it was being in high school with uh, 
Bristol, you know, Pensbury, Nishamni. Um, was there tension in high school? I didn't really. The only tension we had were at football games because we were in a band. Right, they always, right, right. They always would attack the band. And yeah. I remember many times uh, Sun Valley, uh, Marsville, where it broke out into full-fledged battle. Mm. And I had to save my horn, get my horn in, and a lot of guys took their mouthpiece off, and they were ready to rumble. But our band <laughs> right. director, Mr. Botman, he never let us get to that point. Mm. He was a, again, we had a band director that taught us family values for those kids that didn't have a dad. He became a second dad. Mm -hmm. I had a dad, and he still became my second father because he watched everything I did. When I went off track, he'd tell me, you have too much of a temper. You need not to let these people get under your skin. Walk away from the trouble that comes your way. Right. And if you can't talk to them, don't talk to them. Try to just get out of it. Right. And good guidance because I was, I was real quick yeah. to you know break off something in somebody. You know? <laughs> I was real quick to, to get that way. Right, right. And right. he was like, no. He, goes, he said, I'm that way too. And here's a, like an older Caucasian man saying, I'm just like you. Right. My temper goes like this. I see that. Because one time I quit the band, and he came up and told me. He said, I'm sorry I snapped on you, and I'm sorry that you snapped on me, and it became so public because you're my best guy. So why don't we just forgive each other and come back to band? And I did. And that was it from there on in. I well, never... we, we're going to have to talk about, about that in a, in a little bit. Mm. Um, but you, gotta, you, you, know, you went to Princeton for med. You know, um... I didn't, didn't make it. One thing I found about high school in general, if you come without a good science background, and at that point in the 70s, science programs weren't as strong as they could be. Mm -hmm. Plus, my dad was a chemist. I could not balance an equation. If it, <laughs> it jumped out and said, I'm balanced, I'd say, I'd mess it up. Right. So when I went to Princeton, the first thing they did with pre-med is chemistry. Now, this guy actually got fired after my first year because I walked in. He put eight boards, blackboards full of equation. And when he got to the eighth board, he said, if you don't understand what I just did, you have no reason to be sitting in this class because you will not pass. He ended up failing 70% of his wow. class and lost his job because he was just too over the top. Right, right. But I worked 12 to 14 hours a day on just chemistry. Still got an F. Ugh. But then I started taking more psychology courses. Did better. But then it got to a point like I still wasn't the guy that wanted to be a doctor. So I left. It was supposed to be for six months because I had a lot of death in town. At that point, many of my friends were ODing in, the 70, in 1975. Lost a lot of friends. Hmm. And I wanted to be back home to see if I could stop it from happening. And I was just so confused, I dropped out for six months. Six months became four years. Wow. But I did a lot of things. I worked at Roman Haas. I exterminated at a Holmesburg prison. Oh, and when I was 21, I went in there and I did the ward that had all the killers. Okay. So I met killers that had buried grandmothers in, in cement and did all this crazy stuff. And I had to go in with her. I had to deal with guys like Big Bubba who said, do my cell. And I said, I can't do your cell. All the roaches are coming from down the basement. What did I tell you? And then I had to like take my little squirty gun and say, it's mixed one-to-one -one just for guys like you. If I shoot this in your eyes, you're blind. You better back <laughs> off of me, brother. Okay. And they, they back off. They respected me because right, I had, right. had my mirror glasses on. They couldn't see the fear in my eyes. I was scared <laughs> to death. 
went downstairs, killed the roaches. They loved me to death. And every time I came, they sent me down to the cafeteria. They, hey, they sent a nice sandwich out for you, roast beef. And they gave me good food. Oh, yeah. But my fifth week there, the alarm went off. And see, at Holmesburg at that point, the first thing that they tell you when you go in, the warden and all the guards with him had been buried there in 1971 or something. So between the two walls, they were buried there. So, and I walked in and I said, you do know you walk in your side, your life away, and if there's a riot, you're, you're done because right, we're not going right. to negotiate for you. And I had to sign, 21, you're stupid. I signed off all of that. So after the second wall, you walk into the prison. There's a like a hubcap, like a hub. That's where you have to walk to. So it's like a double wheel, and you're trying to get to the hub that has all these other things going out, like spokes. And each spoke is another ward. So when you go across, they had two machine guns up in the thing on you, and they had two snipers on you. So when you walk through, don't stumper. They said, just keep walking, because if you slow down, they're going to think you're up to something, you may get shot. Right. So I walked in, and they put me in there. Five weeks, the thing went off. I was downstairs with this little tiny guard. They set the smallest guard in with you. And this little guy was like, he was scared. And he said, like, it went off. He said, hide in here. So he locked me in one of the closets downstairs, and we're hiding behind the stuff. It must have taken about 45 minutes till they gave the all clear. Wow. He said, I'm so happy we're alive. He came up. I said, yeah, me too. I walked up to the to the to I said, you won't be seeing me again. <laughs> I said, it's been nice knowing you guys. It's, it's been a great experience. Right. I went to the place. I took the badge off my jacket, gave him my can, and I was done. And that was enough. That was enough. And I ended up going to, at that point, to the College of Music down in Philadelphia. I took a course in composition, mm -hmm. and I took a course in the business of music taught by my now attorney, Lloyd Zane Remick of, you know, Remick uh, Entertainment. He had like Grover Washington Jr. Okay. He has Kevin, he has a lot of known people. Right. So he taught me about the business of music, and I was like, I don't like it. I'm not about this. Yeah. And I stayed away from music. It's quite similar to boxing. Yeah. <laughs> it's good people and bad people. Yeah, exactly. But that wasn't when you, I mean, obviously you were in the marching band. When did you first find out that music was a passion of yours? Well, I always knew music was a passion, mm -hmm. but I didn't think I'd do it professionally. Right. Because my whole thing came down to, after that business of music course, uh, I wasn't a big fan of the music business. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I went back to Princeton, I changed my major to English theater and dance because I was strong in English skills. And by my junior year, I put in for a creative path toward creative thesis. So I had to do several like small musical things. I did one thing called Neutron Man, which was an interesting little thing. I used a couple of guys from town, but it was about this person that dreamed about the future and, you know, we'd all be glowing due to toxicity and that type of thing. Right. But it kind of worked because it was like rough theater. Did it on the very last day I could do it. I'm always that guy. Very at Last moment, came in, pulled it off with guys that are now in the band I play with. And he said, that was the most crazy rough theater. Because one of the things, when the person came in from the outside and showing the toxic stuff, he was supposed to be glowing. I didn't realize I'd be doing this on the day. 
that it was five degrees outside. Oh, yeah. So when he opened up the windows at Princeton Inn right. and came to tell the sad story, the temperature in the place drops from 70 down to 25. So this guy talking about a bad future was chilling right. naturally. And when he left, the temperature went up, and the person that was dreaming the stream woke up. And that was a bass player I worked with, a very nice young lady. Her name was Wigel. And she had the dream, you know, she's like, looked like Polly Purebred. I got up and just looked, and her eyes were all wide. And then she was like, wow. So then it goes to a band practice. I'm supposed to be waiting for her to get the band practice. And then we turned the whole theater around, got the audience like, whoa, you got to, I'm tired of people not looking at what I'm doing. And everybody's moving the stuff. For every rough theater that had two songs in it, and it got me my thesis. The next year I took uh, theater under Jean-Claude Zanatelli, who's still active now at like 85. Mm. He'll be surprised. He says, you need to get on it, man, because you can write. And I said, uh, I never was a big rush. He said, you're one of those guys, you'll finally do it, but you might be old as I am. Actually, my startup's a lot older. And uh, I had Alan Mogler, and I ended up writing Jason Chance, the musical. Right. That was my thesis. It, again, it was late, but got through, got me through school. But the character I created, I never performed until now. Right. So I waited 40 years to play this guy. Right. And... Now I'm very happy to say, oh, back up, back up. You're way too close to Jason. Uh, <laughs> These crazy kids, they never listen. So I'm happy to play that so guy So where did this idea of the alter ego Jason Chance come from? Uh, it just kind of popped out of me when I was writing the musical. I had always been Jason Chance. I changed that name in 1976. I was Jefferson Lynn. And I used to play like folk guitar and all these love songs and made a killing out of like Holy Family and all these places. I'd like to come in at that time and sit and sing quiet love songs. And I had a thing on my chest that said, live the love. And it's very nice. But right. when I started doing more rock and roll, I made a conscious decision to make call myself Jason Chance. They said, how'd you come up with that name? I said, Jason from Jason and the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece. That was one of my favorite right, movies right, as a right, kid right. when the skeletons came. I love that guy. <laughs> so I took Jason and Chance. That's all the music business is. Plus it rhymes with dance. Right. So, so <laughs> right, I, right. I, I've been that since 1976. But then when I went to Princeton, after all the courses I took, I said, let's give this guy some flesh. And instead of my... Jason Chance morphed at that point. But then didn't do anything with it. I did a CD back in 1996, mm -hmm. wasn't able to get it out in time, and then we sat on that for like hmm, 12 years, and I sent it out to a guy that I'd gone to school with. He had a record company, which I didn't know. He listened to it, the record company looked at it, and they said, let's sign this guy. Mm. And we've been working on the In America project a little bit over 12 years. Wow, so you got signed to a, a record deal. 2008. Uh, 2008. So uh, what were you, 50? Or, or I was in my 50s. I can't give you 2008. I'll tell you, 50, 53. How was that day when you were like, wow, I'm actually, uh, you're a professional now? Uh, well, you already, you know, but I, you, it, it didn't really register. Yeah, uh, because it was a lot of work and we didn't have the technology at that point. 
So when we did the first bit of project, I was doing a lot of the Pro Tools things kind of ad hoc in my dining room, and mm -hmm. it wasn't really getting good results, but we were learning what not to do. Right. And 2017, he gave me my own studio, piece by piece, so I could record on my own. Then that's when things started happening. Right. You know, we recorded down in Philadelphia a couple of tunes, and then the rest I did right up, you know, in my, in my house. Right. So um, it kind of worked. And Jason Chance is kind of a, to me, because um, I, don't, I don't know if our viewers, uh, after the show, they'll probably look up Jason Chance, but I've gotten a chance to meet him. He's a kind of a happy character, bubbly, encouraging. Um, uh, what's behind Jason Chance's personality? Well, my parents raised me on the church bench. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you start off in church, but it's, it, then you kind of fade away. And this character did all that. And at the end, he turned out to somebody that respects God, respects family, respects moral values. And he sees himself more of a, uh, as a teacher. Right. You know, that's been in my blood too. Uh, after I came out of Princeton, I spent three years teaching at the Hunt School of Princeton. So I had the pleasure of actually teaching uh, Kings and Queens kids. I taught the Prince of Jordan. I taught, uh, here's one for you, Joshua and Como, the one that changed Rhodesia to Zimbabwe. Is, <laughs> that's, that's history, but if you look at it, Zimbabwe became Zimbabwe through Dr. Joshua and Como. Okay. And he ended up getting taken over by this guy, Robert Mugambi, because I've heard of Mugambi. Robert Mugambi had 80% of the tribe, and, and Como only had 20% of the tribe. So after he did all the hard work and made it Zimbabwe, Robert said, now that's mine. And they put him under house arrest, and he mm -hmm. had to flee. At that point, no one knew, but he flew, he went to, to London. I can say that now because he's long gone. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. his daughter, I taught during that whole period of time, and I had to ask her one day. I said, Wheezy, could I call her Louise instead of Shambale? Shambale was her name. He said, uh, I said, well, you're 190, 95 student. How come you have a 76? And she's like, Mr. Fisher, you don't read Time magazine? Look. And she put it on my desk. She says, that's my nanny. She raised me. And that's my butler. And that's my chauffeur. With their brains blown out in my driveway. And you expect me to get high grades? Yeah. At which point I had to pay more attention to what was going on around me because I was in the middle of the world. And right. I didn't realize how many people were being influenced by things in their country. They had a lot of foreign students. But I retested her, I paid attention, and I actually, well, I can say this now, I acted as her bodyguard when she wanted to go up to New York City. Mm. And, you know, her dad was like, ask Mr. Fisher, you know, because he'll look like a teacher, not like a bodyguard. Right, and right. Goes, But I know he can handle himself. So I got a personal invitation to take Encomo's daughter to New York. That was one of my things that I think about. I go, he trusted me enough, and he was in hiding. Right. So I ended up getting a lot of world experience. Right. I also taught Paul Newman's daughter there. And I got to meet Paul and Joan Woodward up at their house. I got to taste his salad dressing, first person outside of his family. And he told me a few things. He said, treat everybody alike. That's what I do. You only need so much money. And the rest you go to charity because people are hoarding up too much for the future. They don't know what their future 
is going to bring. Reminded me of the guy in the Bible who had a good crop and he was big, building bigger barns. And God say, you fool, your soul will be demanded of you this evening. So instead of giving to the poor and taking care of people, you're storing up for yourself. Yeah. So I learned a lot from people that actually have made it what your focus should be. Right. It should be on your community. It should be bringing people up with you and not just say, ha, ah, look what I did. Right. It should be like, look what I can do to help people. And I know your focus is the same oh, way. Yeah, um, you know, for me, uh, it's just naturally inside of me, you know, and, and uh, selfishly it makes me feel good <laughs> uh, to help other people. Oh, it's not selfish. Um, That's what you're yeah. supposed to feel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but also, you know, just being a part of the community, I meet other people that are a part of the community. Um, you, you, you came here as Jason Chance. Uh, we did a nice little promo video for you. <laughs> That's so cool. um, but it's like this. It, this you're telling the story about Bristol Borough, but you're you're coming to my gym, the maintenance man. Say, hey Jeff, <laughs> you know, play um, ball with him. Yeah, I used to play basketball with him, you know. Or I'll tell somebody, um, Jeff Fisher is going to be on the podcast. Oh, I know Jeff. Uh, this really is your town. Well, um, it's, it's the bottom line comes down to this: if you don't leave town and you don't get caught up with who you are, like a lot of my friends at school even the second time around, they were embarrassed. The first time around, one guy, my roommate, he was embarrassed by his mom who had cleaned toilets as a maid in New York to send him there, showed up one day in her maid uniform. And I could see the look on his face like, I am so embarrassed. He's like, Mom, what are you doing here? Yeah. And I was like, never be that guy. Yeah. You know, I, I welcomed my parents up every time I saw them. They supported me even in my return after I messed up the first time. They were up every other weekend, you know, just to see how I was doing, right. take me out to dinner to see how they're doing, and encouraging me, you're close to the finish line. Right. In just a moment, you will be graduating from this place, and you don't even realize what that's going to mean until you do it. Because for them, they said, you don't understand. It's really kind of hard to do this, and you're like, kind of lottie dying your way right, through. Right, right. He said, but focus in. One thing that helped me when I went back that first semester, 1979, when I returned, they redid Roots on TV. And I was there working my way through, and I'm watching Roots, and I'm yeah. studying, I'm looking at Roots, and it all came together for me. I'm fulfilling my family's destiny. This is why they wanted me to do this, because for them, one step up for every family member. Right. Once you pull the future and push them ahead of you. Right. And that's what my parents did. Right. And I said, ah, now I get it. Then I was like, shh, focused. Yeah. And it sounds like um, a lot of people did for you what you're doing for other people. You listened to the people that came before you. Um, I have an issue with certain people. Uh, now, I'm not saying anybody specifically in general, but... You know, kids my age, <laughs> yeah. um, who won't listen to certain people. They think that they know it all. Um, they think that they're already up there when they're not really on that level yet. Um, how do you get through to certain people and, and tell them like, look, you got to be humble and you have to listen so you can get to where other people are. The only way you can get someone to listen to you 
really is to do it yourself. <laughs> you, you got you got to shine by example. Right, right. You know, right. They, if I say, hey, you should be helping people, they look at me and they say, well, you're on the front lines of the food bank and you're still moving trash cans right. and you know picking up crap and you're doing all the nasty work. How come you're you're a Princeton grad? Because you need to serve your neighbors. Service was instilled on me. My dad served numerous things. He taught, uh, not taught. He coached football. He coached basketball. Uh, his Harvard team remained undefeated. He had championship after championship because he taught people to be a team, mm-hmm. how to get along with one another. So his team was mixed, but they were just a team. It right. wasn't black kids, white kids, Puerto Rican. No, it was a team. And he did that with football, he did that with basketball, and with baseball. Until there's a lot of confusion because a lot of people didn't like the fact that he was winning so much. And he basically kind of withdrew from that mm. at one point just due to it changed. Right. When people were showing up and screaming about their kid. How come my kid didn't do this? Or how? They didn't do that to him, but they did that. Other teams had that going on. Yeah. Parents screaming, parents threatening. And my dad said, that's a poor example of sportsmanship to steal yeah. kids. And he kind of withdrew from the whole. Now, other coaches have stepped up, and they try to teach kids those values. It's a lot harder mm. today when kids are coming from, like, broken families. Oh, yeah. And they don't have two parents in the household. No fault of their own mm-hmm. a lot of times. It's, yeah. it's, it's our, the values that we have in our, our country right now. Right. Yeah. I deal with that a lot with the kids that I teach um, in here, um, you know, and and it just goes way deeper than we have time to. Yeah. <laughs> to so talk I bet about. you find yourself being a surrogate father. Oh yeah, you, you know, know um, there's a lot of babysitting that goes oh, on, a lot yeah. of uh, taking kids, you know, and and I like it, you know. We do public cleanups. A lot of kids come with us. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, now uh, I have I'm blessed enough to have a, a lake house, which. I wish we could have done the podcast from there today, but uh, I didn't want to on the whim, you know. I want to make sure that lighting is okay and, and all that. But um, I got a kid here who I'm going to be bringing to my lake house <laughs> every go. so often, you know. And he's a kid who um, he he needs some kind of uh, guidance, you know. I, I'm not sure what's going on at home, and I don't ask, but I just know that you know this place is where he needs to be. And you're a mentor. Um, and he I'm looks. A mentor. At, he looks at you as a guy but that's giving I, back. I wouldn't have been the person that I am if I didn't hang out with 60 year old guys. Yeah. <laughs> and in reality, they're the people that helped me uh, get to where I'm at right now. It wasn't uh, someone that was 30 or even 40 or 50. I had to listen to my elders. Uh, who have businesses that are retired, who have uh, been through relationships and, and married for a lot of years or divorced, you know. Um, but I have a lot of peers that uh, have the blinders on, and that's just, you know, where they're going. For a lot um, of times it's their survival, though. They don't want to see left or right because they realize where they're falling short. you just like, let me just get through this. Let me just keep yeah, going. Let me. Yeah. And you, the kids go to the sidelines a lot of times because they're focused on their own survival. Yeah. One of the problems I find, too many people look at their survival and stop looking at their kids and their neighbors and everything yeah, around yeah. them. We have too much me, me, me. I don't mean like me, 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 me. We have too much me, me, me in this nation. Right. And it should be us, us, us. I, I believe so too. Now, 
this conversation is perfect to segue because we talked about the food pantry, but we didn't talk about how it came to be. How um, did you become the head of Bristol Borough Community Action Group? Was it was it even a thing before you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was founded back in 1971 by my great aunt, uh, Ella Mae Ringle. I remember her because she had a sewing shop up on Mill Street, up on uh, Buckley Street. Mm -hmm. But she would sew. But she was like a community kind of like activist on Buckley Street. She would pull people in and say, "Oh, Johnny, you shouldn't be doing that. Get away from those boys." She was like the 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 street mother. Right. She founded it with my dad back in 1971 as Crystal Burr Community Action Group. Supposed to be a group to help people uh, just coordinate their lives in a way. Mm -hmm. The education, mentoring, uh, bringing people in. You know, food wasn't a big deal then. It was more like teaching people how to read and write and educate and get to the next stage. Right. 1976, they were five years in. That was when I had dropped out of Princeton. One of my jobs was uh, actually running Bristol Borough Community Action Group during the summer up on Buckley Street where it was located. And my job was to teach three young minority folk. I did have two uh, Hispanic and one black young lady. And it was to get them to the next stage and she said, uh, Jeff, I need you to teach them how to talk on the phone, not chew chewing gum, and how to behave like proper young ladies in an office setting. So I worked with them, and I worked with them. All three of them turned out to get, like, professional jobs. And one, I'm not going to mention her name, because you know what I'm talking about, became a supervisor with PennDOT. Mm. And when I took my granddaughter up there to get her license... I see her standing behind in the, behind the desk. I thought, oh, that's, I taught her. I remember because she was the one, and I looked, I was telling my granddaughter the whole story about getting her not to chew gum. Right. And she's like, hey, yeah, it looks like you did a nice job. I look up, and she's chewing a wad of gum <laughs> as a supervisor. So I, a I supervisor. look up, and our eyes meet, and she reached up to her mouth, and she eased the gum out of her mouth, and I saw it slide down, and then she dropped it in the can. And she looked up to see if I was looking. I looked at my granddaughter, so she wouldn't think I was looking. So when we get up there, she said, oh, Mr. Fisher, is this? Yeah, it's my granddaughter. And she said, oh, so wonderful. I said, hey, by the way. She said, what? I said, I saw you. <laughs> yeah, you <called> her. <laughs> I saw you. And she looked at me, and she said, I just stopped smoking. I knew you saw me. I saw you. I tried to get it out of my mouth. But the one thing I thought was, professionals don't chew wads of gum. And here I am getting over cigarettes. And here I am. And you caught me. Right. But right, it was right. so funny because it's, it showed me it stuck from 1976 to 2015. Wow. That was a lot of years that yeah. lessons can stick if you're very insistent about the truth. Right. Don't tell them stuff that you're not doing yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Show them. Tell them. And be consistent. It's right. consistency in behavior that's the biggest thing. Right. What year did you take over the uh, pantry? Well, my mom ran it with uh, Reverend Ross in the 90s. Then my mom took over, and she was doing it, you know, the paperwork pretty much up to 2006, where she had like a mini a heart did something. She went out of rhythm, 
She almost died, but she survived it because she was like gone without oxygen for like 45 minutes. Mm. And they said it was a miracle that she got through. And they said she was going to be brain damaged. She came back just as sharp as ever. Wow. However, she didn't feel sharp enough that she wanted the pressure of running the food bank. Now, at that point, I had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis for five years. Right. My mother said, the food bank is closing. This is the BBCAG because there's no one to take it over. I said, I'll take it over. She said, how can you take it over? You have MS, you have this, you have that. And the worst part is, she said, it's a lot of aggravation for no pay because we're volunteers there. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I am, you know, trying to get it to the point that I can actually pay my volunteers because during the pandemic, nobody really wants to volunteer when they have no money. Right, right. But I was, I'm still a volunteer executive director. I've done this since 2006, and I never had a more fulfilling job. Right. Uh, my company, I worked for PHH Mortgage during that period of time as a liaison to the president of a big mortgage company. I went from processing loans to being... Uh, what they call quality control mm-hmm. with loans and any issues that the company had with somebody that was big money, that call would come to me at home and it would say, like, moments of trust call, at which point I had to save the $30 million that they're ready to pull out of their account. Mm-hmm. Did that for a while, and then it got to a point it was just too much. I became a cog in the machine. I was still executive director at the food bank, but I couldn't be on site most of the time. Right. And my wife was sick as well, and it got to a point that I said, you know what, I think this is it. I woke, I didn't wake, I went downstairs one day after being on the phone for three hours with a customer, and my wife was on the floor, she had had a seizure, I didn't know how long she was on the floor, my blood pressure shot up to 200 over 100, my family doctor looked at me and said, you can't do that job anymore, even from home, you're done. So they put me out the pasture in 2010, then I became on site executive director right. where I got my hands dirty I put out the trash right, and right. I got involved with the people coming in and it's kind of funny because that all plays into kind of like the story of my life that I'm actually working on where it actually begins at the, at the at the food bank and it shows people that get introduced early that have made decisions and you can see how their decisions turned out on the back end in the beginning of it it's, it's going to be a very interesting thing right but uh yeah, it's, it's kind of good to be part of Bristol and not getting away from it. Right. You know? I'm uh, I'm not from Bristol. You know, I'm from Fairless Hills. Hills, yes. Um, Oxford Valley area uh, where uh, I lived in a big condo, you know, growing up. My dad had a little bit of money. Um, he moved us up here from, uh, I was one when he moved us from South Philly. Um, so I don't have any memory of that. Um, but... The last, let's say, the last, uh, my son's 11, the last 12 years I've lived in Croydon. Um, it took me until three years ago. To, I've driven through Bristol Barrow, yeah. but I never had any roots here or anything. It took me until I opened up this gym to really uh, be a part of the community. Um, it's only been three years. And it's funny that your, your stage name is Jason Chance because it's by chance that um, me and you got together. I was thrown a benefit already for charity, a bowling benefit. Yes. Um, and I had no idea. I knew I wanted to do something for the community. I had no idea. So I, I just started Googling places. 
<laughs> just to see, you know, what this place looks like they might need something, or this place looks like that might they might need. I, I did call somebody before uh, I decided to go with you guys, and it sounded like uh, the donation wouldn't have been used as well um, as I would want it to be used. I, I wasn't quite sure, so um, I ended up calling uh and asking yeah. if you guys would take and I, I it was it was a female um i'm not sure that had to be my wife. Phone. uh and I, I said is it okay if i do this charity in your guys's name and 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 bring in money uh for you guys and uh now that i look back on it and and mm. know you know how the things work i feel stupid for even asking mm. but they were like, yeah. they, 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 they seemed like I was like, well, yeah, what are you asking us for? Go no, ahead. No. Hey, um, you have to understand something. I'm used to that happening at the food bank. Right. God has blessed us so much. We'll be running out of money. Oh, what's going to happen? And I'm saying, God will provide. And someone will come in just like you and say, hey, would you mind if I gave you a thousand bucks? Right. No, I'd appreciate that. Okay, here you go. And then I can buy food and get things caught up. Right. I depend. I have never asked anyone for money right i don't do that i have a guy down in florida you grew up in bristol lived across the street from me he calls my mom his second mom and he's polish right, right, right. and his last name is Glukowski. and we've been like brothers my whole life mm-hmm. when this started he already was in the music business running record companies doing all this stuff he said i want to give back i am going to create a website called givebucks.org and that money will all go to the food bank and he said that will keep you going if we do it right, right. and he's been doing that for well 2008 mm. it's been like 12 years he's been my CFO right. and helping with the financial part of it and he doesn't ask either he just has the website up there and will point to the website and people donate through the website. Right. And we stay pretty well funded between individual donors such as yourself and people locally. Right. And people give to give bucks. But the bottom line is we are have been able to stay funded and give people more. Now the next step is to grow the food bank. This whole music project that I've been working on is to take the food bank from where it is okay. and move it into a location where I can have a homeless shelter because we don't have enough beds for the homeless and my dream is to have it set up so that we could take in individual male individual female and families and keep them all separate and secure with a whole bunch of beds right i have a dream of having referral centers so when people come in to get you know food we can do an intake and say what's going on with you how come you're here like this what issues can we help you with? If you have this or that, just be honest, and then we'll hook you up with someone that may deal with alcohol abuse, right. someone that might deal right. with drug abuse, someone that will help you get a better education or figure right. out how to get you somewhere to get your GED, and then work with you with applications, teach you how to do things, right. teach you how to survive in the world. Sounds like, um, you know, we we have the same mindset. I, I'm having uh, my my nonprofit form right now. Um, Witherspoon Community Initiative. There you go. Um, where uh, I want to do things like that, uh, but mainly I want to focus on uh, our youth and um, help them get things. Like if you listen to our podcast and with my sister, 
I'm going to call her my sister now, Kate Files, a young yep. blonde suburban. One of our goals through uh, the nonprofit is to get uh, underprivileged kids uh, SAT prep, you, you know, things that they can't really reach. Um, other things are like the easy ones, free gym memberships and uh, get retired uh, athletes as well involved with the get kids, involved. things like that. I might be your uh, heir apparent. Oh, I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> I ain't going anywhere yet. Don't, don't. No, no, no. I don't, but look, just remember me. You know when you're ready to, uh, you know, go on the beach and uh, <laughs> sip pina coladas. Hey, it's good to know that someone actually is taking that type of interest. Yeah. For, for minority kids, because right. again, they're starting off with a disadvantage, and I guess it's been made pretty evident uh, recently the disparity that there is as far as how minorities are treated and opportunities are given versus, you know, non-minorities. And it's something that we all kind of felt growing up that we're not treated exactly the same. But now it's a matter of that's why income is lower, because education is lower. And it's like a whole set of two systems working here, one for minorities and one for non-minorities. And I like the way that we're trying to move to unity. Yeah. Everybody should be treated the same. Yeah, and there are programs that are actually based on bringing up the median income yeah. in low-income areas, whether you're black or white. Right. Poor is universal. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but the, the disparity is there. And I just yesterday had a conversation with one of my clients who happens to be a African American, like from Africa, Africa, her family, but she's American. And she said, wow, you got a lot of uh, Caucasian people at your gym. And I was like, yeah, you know, um, one thing that I noticed uh, being a gym owner now is that uh, Caucasian people have more disposable income than African Americans do. Uh, a lot of, it's just because I'm, I'm the one that's taking in the money. Yeah. I kind of can, I see. You can see it. Who, who struggles to pay, who ha- pays early. You know, those little things um, you start to build analytics of. Um, and, and I started to notice that, wow, you know, um, just certain people have more income to do certain things with. Also, though, as a minority, um, some of us, we have to do better as well because we don't prioritize our money sometimes in the right mm-hmm. way. We'd rather do material things than uh, take care of our health, you know, or, you know, spend money on things that you don't necessarily need. Like cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that's that in in both of those situations that comes in all cultures. But I see it very prevalent as an African-American business owner, the difference of who can afford certain things and who has trouble uh, affording certain things. But. That's why, you know, as being only, and you're running a business, a nonprofit is a business. Um, there's not that many of us in this town uh, that are running businesses. So it's, it's funny, I don't even think about that as running a business. But it is. It is. You know, I'm doing the paperwork, I'm doing all the stuff, I'm yeah. doing all the. But I don't think of it because it becomes so much second nature. This is what I got to do to feed people. Right. It's not like I'm running a business. Yeah. My wife and I, my wife's the pastor. One of the transitions I had from the time I was younger and now from the first time I put out music in 1996 to now 
is that this month, May 18th, I'll mark 25 years of marriage, silver anniversary, and my wife was called. Thank you. My wife was called to the ministry, like in the middle of the night. Like, I woke up, my wife was downstairs reading the Bible. And I was like, what's up with that? You know, because yeah. I used to like, you know, like get out there a little bit. She said, God called me and I answered. Blew my mind. I was like, Phew. next thing you know, she's an ordained uh, pastor and doing the nursing home. And then she got sick. And then she said, you're up. I said, what are you talking about, Wills? You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm up. What do you mean I'm up? You know, she said, God called me and you're my associate pastor and I can't stand to do the sermon, so you need to do the sermon. I'd just been singing at that point. Right. And I went up and I went to the place and I said, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know. My wife had all these well-sculptured, you know, scriptures. And I just walked up. I looked at her scriptures. I said, I don't think I can get through this. And God said, just do you. Right. And I went up and I read one scripture and next thing I know, it was a half hour later, 40 minutes later, and everyone said, that was that was the most wonderful sermon. What, how'd you do that? I said, I don't remember what came out of my mouth. <laughs> and wow. I, I still don't, when I, do pre, when I preach, I don't understand what comes out of my mouth. You walk up willing, you open up your heart, and next thing you know, you're doing your sermon. Right. So that kind of transitioned the way that we lived in yeah. general. And we're raising a grandchild. So we took all that time off to kind of make the food bank a place, even though it's not a 501c for a church, we look at that as our ministry. Right. Where people come in, we want them to leave uplifted and spiritually fed as well as physically fed. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be working out that way because we try to give them the best possible food. Yeah. We tell them they are somebody. Yeah. And the main thing is you're a child of God. You should look at yourself as a child of God. And if you look at yourself through God's eyes that you are a loved person yeah. and we show you love, it can't be worse. You can't leave worse than how you came in. We want everybody to leave feeling better about themselves and about life. I need you to, uh, my assistant couldn't be here today because she took her mom away for uh, Mother's Day. But uh, we call her Sister Brandy. She's uh, an, 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 what did you say, an an, uh, ordained minister. Um, I'm not ordained. I got called. You, you know, got called. I got called. Okay. Well, you know what? I don't. I, and you know what? I don't know if she's ordained either. Um, but she is a minister, and uh, we talk sometimes with her having writer's block. Hmm. Um, she doesn't know what to say for a sermon sometimes. Hmm. Um, you probably be a good person to just have a conversation with her um, and talk to her about that. Yeah, listen to what God's saying. Open your mouth. It's very, it's very well, so. <laughs> hopefully she uh, watches her boss's podcast yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and she gets that information. Yeah, I, I mean, the bottom line is I have none of that. I hadn't, now, the past year, spent an intensive amount of time reading the Bible mm-hmm. in the morning, basing my life around God. Because mm-hmm. I know one thing. There's no way in the world you get to fulfill a record deal nationally. Right. At 65 years of age, 
with 20 years of multiple sclerosis where they told you you should have been in a wheelchair back in 2001 and getting stronger every day. Right. That does not happen. Right, I right. know it's not natural. I claim nothing but the fact that God has blessed me. As my character Jason Chance says, oh, God be very, very good to Jason. <laughs> very good. You know? So that's I want to get into Jason because we're, we're getting to the uh, closing of our interview. Okay. But you have this campaign that's going on right now that's very important. Uh, for I think it's important for us to talk about. Uh, what's your new campaign along with the video uh, that's coming out? Okay. Or it came out, it already it, dropped. Well, the first one that came out was social distancing. Right. And that was just something to tell people, it's not quite over yet. If you keep hanging out together, it's going to go longer than it needs to go. So you need to back up, back up from Jason, at least six feet. Oh, these crazy kids, they never listen. And it talks about don't be gathering. It's just basic stuff. You know, there's things that indicate you should have your mask up and all that type right. of stuff. But uh, in the next video... I'm working on right now we just signed uh actually it was crazy it happened three o'clock this morning we signed uh, this guy christopher beza he is a award-winning and nominated uh videographer uh director from out in burbank california and they got him to do my next video in america and i was working on the storyboard last night mm -hmm. and this is the big, this is the flagship one with a, a real director from Hollywood and uh, being in a position to actually talk about America. And the big part in, in this song is talking about the future. Mm -hmm. It talks about what we've done in the past. It talks about how we survived 9-11. But it goes to uh, a part in the middle that says, let's strive to do what's right. Keep hope's light shining bright. Hope's such a lovely sight to see. Be kind to those in need. Plant a harvest. Plant the seeds. That's all our nation needs for freedom. True freedom in America. Now, are these lyrics of the song? Yes. Are, are you the singer of the song? Yes, I am. And the writer. Well, can we get a little a little uh, live version? Uh, let me see. Or right, how about this? Give us your best, your favorite Jason Chance song. Well, in this one, in America, well, I'll stick with that. That one has, the middle part says... Because people don't, they know Jeff, but I, I didn't, you know, and I was going to say that earlier, like when I did call up and then I actually did give the donation, then me and you had like an hour-long conversation. You called and we talked back and forth, um, but I didn't have any idea of your musical talents. Your granddaughter, when you guys came to the gym... Yeah. Had no idea. Well, she knew that you were in music, but she had no idea that um, you were doing what you were doing. Yeah. I heard you sing, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> well, this the, guy is musically uh, inclined. Uh, so this is people all I over. I thank my music here. teacher from Bristol High. <laughs> I, th I thank uh, Kenneth Bachman. I thank Susan Hickey, all the ones that actually said, don't listen to them. You got something to give. Right. But I, I always had people like, there's always a naysayer. Yeah. But I, my music people were all positive. Uh, Phyllis Naylor, who's getting close to 100, she marched in that Women's March last mm. year. She was on TV because right. she was the oldest person there. She encouraged me in theater and all that type of stuff. So, nice. true, everything I am was really started based in some of the people that reached out to me in Bristol and saw me not as anything but a person.
Right. Not anything other than not a black person. Not a right, different, right, right. No, 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 a person. And they love me as such. Good. Now, my favorite song, I like it in, in America, which says, uh, Let's strive to do what's right. Keep hope's light shining bright. Hope's such a lovely sight to see. Be kind to those in need. Plant a harvest, plant the seeds. That's all our nation needs for freedom. True freedom in America. Built on a faith preserving. A faith that keeps our nation strong. In America. We will survive, keep moving on. We will survive, keep moving on. God bless us all. We're moving on. Nice, thank you. I like that song. I'll tell you one thing. I do it with a little reggae and a little swag to it. But at one point, some country guy is going to pick it up and say, it sounds like the blue suede shoes and they lost their dog. But I want it to be an uplifting song. Right, right, It's a great song, slow, too. Right. So I just like the fact that I'm able to do it this age. God has blessed me. And I hope he's blessed you, too. Uh, Well, we're we're blessed, you know, to be alive at all, to wake up. Um, I'm glad to be here with you. I want other Same people here. to be able to get in contact with you um, and to be able to, one, uh, find out where they can hear more Jason Chance uh, because you have beautiful horns in your music, beautiful musicians playing different instruments, uh, and the whole package is great. Uh, where can they find uh, Jason Chance at? Okay, we've been released. If you go to Jason Chance. Dot global. Mm-hmm. It'll show all the places that my song has been distributed to. If you go on YouTube and uh, put in Jason Chance Songs, S-O-N-G-S, you'll see like a picture of a hooded Jason Chance. You'll see the, the dreads. And if you touch that, you'll see the recent video, uh, Social Distancing. Mm-hmm. But you can buy a copy of that at any of the locations. We're on Spotify, iTunes. YouTube, and all the distribution channels. Right, so, underneath Jason Chance. Jason Chance. Okay, and for me, like, I love your music and everything like that, but I'm more of a community activist guy. The most important part of this whole thing is how people can get to that food pantry and donate and mm. keep you guys going. Okay, two ways. One, you could go to givebucks.org. You'll see a picture of Grundy Tower. It gives our whole history and everything. Mm-hmm. There you can make a one-time donation or recurring donations. You can use PayPal or any major credit card. So that part was set up by you know right. Jim Glogowski. Right. Uh, it, it got a lot of us young guys, uh, yeah. we, we only know social media handles and, and mm-hmm. how to get to you on like Facebook, Instagram. Do you, are you guys on there? Yeah. Uh, most of them are under uh, Jason Chance songs on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's the same on uh, Facebook. I had some issues with Facebook, so we're still... There was another Jason Chance page oh. I had, and somehow they didn't merge correctly. Mm. It's, Facebook is very funky that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm working with, to get that resolved. The other thing is a good old-fashioned check. Uh, don't write out the whole thing, because Bristol Borough Community Action Group incorporated too much. B B C A G, B B C A G is accepted at all the banks. Yeah, the acronym. And uh, if you write a check out to B B C A G, send it to 
99 Wood Street, Bristol, PA, 19007. And uh, we most gladly we accept it. We are 501c3 and, you know, verified, yep. good, pro- you know, nonprofit in good yeah. standing. And I can vouch for that. You know, every time I uh, have donated, I've been able to write it off as well. You give receipts. You give a nice little thank you letter, um, personal. I, I may be a little bit behind on my thank you letters due to the <laughs> fact that I just released one and they asked me to release another right behind it. Right, right, uh, right. They want In America to be available by the 4th of July. Okay. And they hired this guy, Chris Baza, 3 o'clock in the morning to be the director. He's the one that came in at the last minute and kind of worked with social distancing because I had a bad experience with the people that filmed. I won't doubt yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. But bad experience. They got me behind schedule. They held my video for ransom. And this guy came in, took the pieces, gave me instruction, and made it what it was. Right. But this time, he wants to be involved from the beginning to show his uh, his chops. Right, right. And he's going to be doing a, a, a meeting with us by Zoom from California this week with the latest parameters down. And then we have to shoot, shoot, shoot. And I'm going to shoot most of this again, showing Bristol business. I'm going to try to use some Bristol folk in some of the stuff so people will recognize, hey, I'm in Jason Chance's video. And it'll be like, I never thought I'd be in a, a national video. Right. Of course, you, know, you don't get paid. <laughs> you, you get a dollar to appear, and you have to sign a release because nobody gets paid to be in a video. Right. You know, nobody does that. You sign a release for that, you get to see yourself. Right, right, you know, right, so. right. Hey, well, it's all exciting stuff. We're probably going to have to come back for a part two uh, when all this is done. But I'm really happy that I got my good friend on the show. Same here. Uh, we do a lot of good work for the community. This is all, this is, this is just, it's great. We're all vaccinated. Yeah, and the <laughs> so, whole thing is giving. I really, I really appreciate you. That's Jeff Fisher of the Bristol Borough Community Action Group. Oh, you don't like Jason? Oh, oh, no. Jason Chance. <laughs> oh, Jason, thank you very, very much for being here, Tim. I had such a good time. <laughs> it's creepy, kid. No mess. Then he got vaccinated. It's all good. Thank you. <laughs>